Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project, designed to share the latest learning about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, and how we can strengthen it. I'm Ted Pacone, Chief Engagement Officer for the World Justice Project, and I'll be your host for today's session. The topic for today's talk is the state of the rule of law in China and its implications for international politics and law. The World Justice Project has just released the latest findings of its annual rule of law index based on surveys of expert practitioners and households in 128 countries and jurisdictions around the world. For the last five years, China has scored significantly below global and regional averages. It scores on factors relating to constraints on government powers and fundamental rights are, move, are among the lowest in the world, while it performs better on order and security and civil justice. Alongside these data points, we see China's ascendance as a global power, particularly in economic and security terms. It has embarked on a major push to expand its influence in every region through trade, loans, and investments, gaining significant leverage to shape domestic and international policies to its liking. To help us understand China's rise and its rule of law record, we've invited Margaret Lewis, professor of law at Seton Hall University. Professor Lewis's research focuses on law in China and Taiwan with an emphasis on criminal justice and human rights. She has studied in both Taiwan and mainland China, published widely in professional journals, and testify before the Congressional Executive Commission on China. Professor Lewis, thank you for joining the Rule of Law Talk program. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with the domestic situation in China. How do you see the current rule of law problems? Not good, the situation. As you noted, there's been a slide in not just the last few years, but I think those of us who have been in this field for a couple decades uh, look back quite fondly to perhaps the mid-aughts. And I think back to 2005, 2006, when, for example, we were working with uh, Chinese counterparts on reforms to the criminal justice system, looking at scaling back on the number of executions, making the review process for those executions more robust. And uh, that kind of cooperation is much more limited now for a number of reasons. And so part of this, though, traces back before Xi Jinping uh, became the top leader, but certainly since he has not only assumed the top post but consolidated power, uh, we've seen the situation become even more uh, repressed uh, as far as the space that people used to have to at least have some advocacy uh, for not just economic social rights but civil and political rights, always constrained, but there was more space before he was uh, in, in charge. So, you know, the Chinese regime is one, it's a one-party state, it's set up in a way that really um, doesn't allow for much room for independent judiciary or accountable governance uh, in terms of the role of civil society. Can you say a bit more about in your own research uh, on the country, certain features of what's happening in China that are particularly worrisome? And even though the the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, has been in power since 1949, which is an impressive uh, length of time. The amount of space for not 
dissenting voices, but at least somewhat questioning voices, has waxed and waned over the years. Mm -hmm. So you look back, for example, in the mid-1980s, and, and then there was even some talk about perhaps there should be greater distance between the formal government and the party. Um, and then, of course, uh, Tiananmen uh, happened in 1989, and that space for debate disappeared. Uh, then we got into the 1990s, and, and slowly we started to see more conversation, particularly around how the internet would change uh, China, how WTO, and, and more opening to the outside world. Uh, but you know, what we've learned is that if you have a state that is a one-party state, it doesn't mean that it doesn't listen to its people, but why it listens might be for different reasons. Uh, in order to retain its legitimacy, the CCP needs to be responsive to its people, but that response is limited and always on the CCP's terms. There's never a chance to fundamentally challenge who's in charge. Mm -hmm. And in terms of either legal reforms you've seen that are encouraging, maybe below the radar, um, and as well, more recently, the reports of attacks on academics and human rights defenders, um, you know, so things seem to be in uh, serious tension. Can you say a bit more about that? Right, and and as I as we're recording this, Xu uh, Zhiyong, a wonderful lawyer, human rights defender, who has uh, been in and out of trouble over the years, precisely because he has challenged the government and tried to stand up for the rights of individuals. So in 2014, he was sentenced to four years for basically causing a public disturbance, um, but it was because he was challenging the government. And then as the coronavirus uh, broke out, he again started becoming more prominent on social media. Uh, and he's now, you know, we don't know exactly his status, but certainly he's detained in some form, whether that be completely above board legally or using one of the more under uh, under the radar forms of detention. So it's it's really hard for anyone to find space to, to question. And, and that hasn't changed. I do think, though, that there is uh, there is still some role for foreign interaction, and so I don't want to just say that it's a hopeless situation. Uh, for example, with criminal justice, which is something I work a lot with, the uh, there's still an interest in wrongful convictions and how to decrease wrongful convictions. And here, wrongful convictions meaning actually you got the wrong person, you didn't get the perpetrator. And this started you know, over a decade ago when there were some high profile cases where the person who was convicted and sometimes even executed for a crime was later found to have not been able to actually have been the person who did it for you know, very clear reasons. And today there are still collaborations going on to try to figure out what are better interrogation practices to try to decrease uh, the likelihood of that. But again, you know, there's still always this opacity that we don't know, even if uh, interrogations are being taped, what is the access to these tapes? Uh, who is asking these questions? Are there parts of the interrogation that aren't being taped? So I, I, I don't want to say that it's that there's no reforms that are interesting, but it always has to be understood as uh, a very much an opaque system where there's a lot we don't know. Right. And this is a critical question for, of course, the hundreds of millions of people who live in mainland China, but it's also an important question for its neighbors. And I'm thinking in particular of Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, which, of course, the mainland Chinese, the regime feel belong to them. Uh, and we have, most importantly, this debate in Hong Kong around um, one country, two systems. And at the heart of that debate is the protection of Hong Kong's 
a relatively strong, robust record on rule of law and particularly on independence of judiciary. Um, where do you see that debate going right now in light of all the protests? Um, do you see any signs that Beijing might be pulling back from its creeping uh, uh, pressure on Hong Kong to bend toward its will? Yeah, and Hong Kong and Taiwan are, are very different kinds of neighbors to mainland China. And because, of course, Hong Kong, even though it has its special status under the basic law that was put in place when it was returned to the PRC, uh, it it is part of the PRC in a way that Taiwan is not today. And so I think starting with Hong Kong, and I, I try to keep those two separate because they are distinct in, in their uh, in their situations. But with Hong Kong, you, you had going into um, when we were in 1997, this sense that for 50 years, the way of life, the basic uh, law, the basic fundamentals of the judiciary should not change. And, and of course, in the last you know, couple years, or you know, even more than that, we've seen that erode. And I think there, it's going to be really difficult for the people of Hong Kong to hold firm against Beijing unless they are getting support, um, and moral support counts too, um, but different kinds of support from uh, people who are outside of Hong Kong. And, uh, and part of that is keeping Hong Kong's economy robust. It's worrisome uh, when you have it feeling kind of cut off because that's hard for the people there, especially as economic uh, ability to own a house or you know, get an apartment that you can somewhat afford is difficult. And I see my friends who have been there for a long time, and it's it's really worrisome that it's I don't see Beijing letting go. Yeah. Well, at the heart of this debate was an extradition bill that the legislature or the chief executive in Hong Kong had proposed that would allow, make it easier for Hong Kong residents to be sent back to China for um, face various trials. Um, this was, I think, the spark that really led to these kinds of protests. It's a fascinating moment in which really a fundamental rule of law question right. is what led to uh, months and months of wider kinds of protests. It's, it's seldom that extradition is something that, I mean, this right. is as a lawyer, I'm like, I think that's important, but it's not usually what you think is going to get a million or two million people on the streets. But I, what was, was so important about it was that it cut across demographics, that it wasn't an issue, actually less of an issue probably for the students and the young people. If you're a business person in Hong Kong, you're going to be more concerned if you're looking just at the sort of actuarial tables of who is more likely to get in a situation where that kind of um, extradition or return or you know whatever you want to call it, somehow removal through a legal process to the mainland would occur. But it wasn't just about um, you know kids saying our textbooks are not expressing our Hong Kong identity. This was an issue that really galvanized everyone in Hong Kong. And uh, and I now that we are, it's, it's amazing, the one year anniversary is going to be um, upon us before we know it. And uh, and it's it's uh, it feels like longer than a year in some ways. It's been it's been it's been eventful. It has, but it's not clear how it's going to be resolved. And the pessimists feel that you know China, at the end of the day, given its weight and its power and influence, will um, have its way in terms of its um, putting some controls on the independence of the rule of law in in Hong Kong. I don't know if you share that pessimism. Yeah, well, I, I don't think that Beijing needs to have it resolved. In fact, just having this sort of slow erosion and having Hong Kong fade from the front pages is in ways a win for Beijing because if 
the world takes its eye off of Hong Kong and the situation at least doesn't you know, flare up again as far as you know, uh, protests, um, then that works in Beijing's favor, you know, playing the long game. So I, I don't certainly expect any clear resolution anytime soon. Um, what I'm worried about is a, a slow deterioration um, proceeding. So Hong Kong is a special case, as you said, and so is Taiwan. So say a bit about how things are going in Taiwan on these fronts. And, and they can't see, but you're smiling as you say Taiwan, because this is, I think, where we, we look for our, our smiles right now for those of us who do rule of law. And I I was there for the uh, election on January 11th and, uh, and and had, you know, literally went to the polls and we watched people as they counted the ballots. And they are paper ballots and they're in a box that's sealed and it's so so clear, you hold it up and someone's at the chalkboard in the elementary school marking down how many votes there are. It is a free and fair and efficient election. Uh, you know, big uh, rallies that were exuberant. Actually, people came over from Hong Kong. We saw the black protest flags. Even though a lot of them could not vote, some of them were people who both lived in Hong Kong and, and were ROC citizens, Republic of China citizens, and could vote, but more just wanting to be a part of that kind of uh, energy. And, and that night of the election, a bunch of us had dinner, and there were a number of journalists who had come from Beijing because uh, very few of the major media outlets actually have someone full-time in Taiwan, which I, I, I wish more did. Uh, but it makes sense to a certain extent that, especially for some of the smaller um, papers. And it was like these reporters had stepped through the looking glass because they couldn't quite wrap their head around how amazing it was to be someplace where you had diplomats, academics, uh, members of civil society, all hanging out while on a free internet filing stories about an election that went by every measure just as smoothly as can be. Yeah, it's like one of those contrasts that you see on the Korean Peninsula as well. You know, South Korea, North Korea is so different. Taiwan and China so different um, in terms of how they handle these kinds of um, democracy, rule of law, human rights issues. Um, Let's think now about China's um, increasing footprint around the world um, and how it is inserting itself in uh, various ways. Of course, their economy depends greatly on export of um, cheap goods, manufactured goods, import of raw materials, um, and they've really gone quite far, not only in places like Africa and Latin America, but now with this new Belt and Road initiative that is about infrastructure and transportation and a whole package of uh, engineering and other services. Um, what, what effect do you think that's going to have on the rule of law situation in those countries that are receiving that kind of attention from China? Yeah, and this has become more pronounced, but it's not new. So I'm thinking it's about a decade ago almost that Human Rights Watch was doing its research about uh, copper mines in Zambia with uh, investment from the PRC and, and a large presence. And that was before the Belt and Road Initiative. And so this has been slowly happening. And then the BRI really put it out there, I think, in such a uh, put it put a name on it, put a big banner on it. And, and that said, the Belt and Road Initiative, it's 
it's a slogan, it's kind of, it's an initiative, it's a, it's a construct, but it's not a plan that has 20 points about what it's going to include, but was so interesting to see this, not just saying, well, we, we need to go outside of China for economic reasons, but we want to. And as part of Xi Jinping taking a much more robust uh, position as far as China's um, role in the world. And, and so there, I think what we're finding right now is that we need to learn more about what the BRI really means. And and there's a number of examples, whether it be in Sri Lanka, or you've got you know Cambodia, or anywhere else. I was in uh, Laos, and, and basically it looked like China had bought it based on the signage around town. Uh, but what you, know, you hear a lot about uh, concerns about the debt that comes into play. And, and debt itself is not a bad word. You know, Countries and projects use debt all the time to finance. It, the question is, what are the terms of those debts, and and how do you, mm -hmm. um, what is the bargaining position um, of each side? And what I'm like, happy to see is that. Um, a shout out to uh, Meg Rithmere at, at, for example, at Harvard Business School, who's been doing a more granular analysis of what's happening with some of these projects around the world. Uh, Council on Foreign Relations has a task force looking at the BRI. So at this point, I think it's worrisome that when China shows up with money, it's going to say we have goals economically, whether it be for transport, for extracting minerals, and we don't care that much about the workers' rights and dispute resolution, but uh, right now it still is somewhat impressionistic, and I, I really hope that we can get some people doing clear case studies to make this a more evidence-based analysis of what the BRI really means. I mean, I think if we've seen from previous episodes that um, China is working in environments with weak rule of law in many places, Zambia is a case, Venezuela is another, where they've invested over $50 billion, and they may lose a fair chunk of that because, you know, Venezuela's economy is collapsing. And it, it does suggest that at a minimum, China will not be an actor that uh, is going to be uh, in favor of strengthening rule of law, although they may learn over time that that is the best way to protect their investments, that they need countries that have fair dispute resolution processes. And uh, But I also worry about the amount of money that they bring to the table, the corruption, the levels of corruption. Um, which we know from our rule of law index is a declining performance across the board. More countries are performing badly on corruption than, than not. Um, so that confluence of factors, I think, makes China a very potentially dangerous actor in terms of other countries in the world. I, I totally agree. And I, I think now it's a question of, you know, can we try to get more details on, on what that is? And, and certainly uh, there's there's going to be a need for development in countries. And, and one of the questions that comes along with this is, if not China, where does that money come from? And where is leadership and the ability to finance maybe not on the same scale as some of these BRI projects, which perhaps are too big because there's also huge environmental consequences that aren't necessarily being thought through before a, a lot of these projects are actually implemented. But if a, a country that wants to have a more advanced infrastructure, it wants to, what are their options? And, and what can the rest of the world do to give some alternatives to the Chinese money. I mean, I 
wonder if you're thinking about the United States um, <laughs> as a potential counterweight to this. And the U.S. actually is trying to um, wrap up uh, various different federal programs to support U.S. businesses investing overseas. But of course, at the end of the day, these are market-driven decisions made by U.S. companies. And whereas in China, it's very much a state-led uh, approach that um, even if they say, well, these are private corporations, well, the state is behind them 100%. So that makes it a very unequal playing field. Oh, of course. And, and the the speed and, and another part of the rights is not just the workers on it, but the people who are displaced by these projects. If you put in a high-speed rail, uh, it's, there was something where that high-speed rail is now. It could well be someone's home. And uh, I was in uh, China, it was probably a year and a half or so ago now, with a, a group of congressional staff members, and they were from the district offices. So they were very used to dealing with the day-to-day -day of constituents' concerns. And, and we were in, in Xiamen, and there was a new tunnel that had been put in you know, a mile or two in you know, six months or something. And the congressional staffers had both um, um, envy and absolutely aghast at what that meant, you know, in some ways it's like, I, it'd be nice to have a break from all the notice and comment and all the town halls, but they couldn't believe what that must have meant for all the people who had mm -hmm. some sort of interest in the space that was now this tunnel. Yeah. Well, um, it does raise the question of whether China is gone beyond just advancing its economic interests and is now trying to promote its own model of you know socialism with Chinese characteristics um, which probably is not very good for the rule of law uh, around the world what what's your view on that yeah and I and this is you know a debate that's going on um, not just in the legal world but of course the political scientists and others and uh, I think that Jessica Chen Weiss at Cornell has done a lot of great work. Uh, her article, "Making the Safe uh, the World Safe for um, Authoritarian you know, Authoritarianism," is is key in thinking about to what extent is this about taking a Chinese model and transplanting it and saying we're actually offering up a different way of structuring your government as compared with more well, we just want to make it so we can do what we want to do, but we're not necessarily trying to sell a certain model of government. And and I, I see this both ways. You know, on the one hand, I, I do think that the, the Chinese uh, system, the current PRC party state, is a very particular form of of a party state government because as anyone who works with China knows that the party is more important than the state and so when we speak of the Chinese government we're really talking about the PRC party state and that has particular historical reasons and that does not transplant easily so it's not that you're going to have mm -hmm. sort of mini PRC party states but I do think what's worrisome is this uh, Beijing sending this message that you don't need free and fair elections, you don't need to have any elections, that you can have, as we see it, the party listening to the voices and then having democracy, I'm doing scare quotes right now, that takes into account all of these voices but mediated through the party right. and offering that up as an alternative, which for any authoritarian leader is just a, a dream. Right direct democracy. We don't need those mediating representative institutions in between. Um, this is, uh, there are two things. One is on surveillance technology and other forms of digital technology that the Chinese are promoting, exporting for their own economic reasons, but obviously it's another instrument that they use to maintain control of their own society. We're seeing that starting to take root in some countries. That's a 
concern. I don't know if you're following that issue. Yeah, and and this has been um, interesting to follow from the, the lawyer in me because uh, there is there are many reasons to be concerned about, so for example, social credit systems in China. But uh, I think the media has, in some ways, conflated a lot of different issues to, to one big black mirror scenario. And there's lots of reasons to be concerned, but uh, it's not that there's just one system. There's a lot of things going on in China. And so again, this is a time that I think we need to figure out what is really scary and what is like when I get my credit score done so I can, you know, whatever, buy a car. And because there's plenty to be very scared about, but it, when we conflate all these issues into one big kind of boogeyman, it takes away some of the arguments force because let's focus on what is the real problem. And I do think that this surveillance, both uh, the idea that if you have WeChat on your phone, your phone is Beijing's, right? And and that if you say anything in WeChat that is going to be about Xinjiang, Tibet, you name it, that you will likely get cut off and or worse. And so that there's that surveillance that follows us in our pockets everywhere. But also if you go to China, you just look up in the trees and there are cameras everywhere. And I, um, that's that's not just true in, in Xinjiang where I haven't been able to go, obviously, you know, that's restrained, but that's true in, in sort of more sort of normal cities too, that you never uh, have a, it's really hard to get a private space. You know, that, that's, that's very limited right now yeah. in, in China. Yeah. Well, there's another aspect of what they are trying to do um, internationally beyond the bilateral investments and activities. There's also at the multilateral level. And we see what's happening with the geopolitics shifting, much more of a competition between China and the United States, and um, a lot of other countries kind of standing by the sidelines to avoid getting hit. Um, you are beginning to see, in particular, activities at the international human rights uh, regime and system where China is asserting its own system of governance and its own interpretation of human rights um, into the human rights discourse. Um, this is really, I think, a, a new development. I mean, China for decades really sought just to block any criticism of its behavior. But now it's gone a step further, more proactively inserting the kind of language that would create a, a better environment for them. Um, I know you're tracking that issue, and what do you have to say about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, no, China is no longer the, the persistent abstainer or hide and buy, right? And one thing that's you know, very frustrating to me is it's not just that it's not that the U.S. and China are duking it out at the U.N. The, the, U, the U.S. is standing too much on the sidelines. And it does matter that the U.S. is not in the Human Rights Council. And, and even though, of course, there's still U.S. Uh, um, presence in U.N. bodies, but it's not nearly as in the forefront and, and robust as I think it should be, and nor as it has been historically. And that gives space, and, and China is filling that space uh, with with I think, great um, success, and I don't like that success. But you look at uh, the terminology, whether it be win-win, you know, mutually beneficial cooperation, uh, the right to development as being paramount over other rights, uh, that's just not true if you study fundamental human rights. And it used to be that uh, those of us who did work with rule of law in China were almost entirely focused on what was happening within China. And, and that's shifted, and now the concern is how the the preferred rhetoric, the preferred framing of Beijing is being 
put into these international organizations. And that has the potential to shift and, and, and to sap the force from these fundamental human rights that have been play, in place since you know, after World War II. Yeah, I mean, this innocuous language like win-win cooperation is really hiding something much more nefarious. I wrote a paper for Brookings on this to try to document what is really going on. And what they're talking about is removing the UN or any kind of international monitoring system and le leading toward, you know, um, every country should control its own internal sovereignty and no one else has the right to po peek behind the borders. Um, also, of course, promoting their own state-led development model. They're trying to undermine international mechanisms um, and avoid the whole idea of naming and shaming tactics. Um, I think there has been some pushback on this, but uh, a lot of countries are, are really not stepping up to it. And we'll see where it goes, um, but uh, this is one of the other kind of red flags that we should be paying attention to. Yeah, and I and there, you know, we really this is when the multilateral effort is so important. I said no one country can do this alone, and and fortifying fundamental human rights is something that requires a team. And and with and what's interesting is because China, you don't have Beijing rejecting the phrasing. You know, they'll say, oh, yes, we you know believe in you know whatever freedom of speech, but what they mean is very different. And and I have an, a paper coming out where I try to desc I describe this as, if you go to a museum that has Chinese artifacts, artifacts, there's lots of dings, which are vessels, you know, and this sort of like bronze vessels. And they look so beautiful and imposing, but they're empty. And I feel like that's what Beijing is trying to do to these international human rights, is they want them to sound and look pretty. Mm. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion. But it's freedom of religion as long as it's a religion that's been okayed mm. by the party state and we decide who is heading up that religion. Well, that's not real freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. And this is a trend that we see in other parts of the world, this growing concentration of power in, in government at the expense of fundamental rights and the ability to hold governments accountable and um, with, with China's rise and their growing economic power in the world, and they marry those things up, they have some serious leverage and ability to um, make the, the space for civil society and for uh, human rights uh, smaller. So that is what we're facing, I think, at this moment. Um, of course, maybe a final word on the current crisis around the coronavirus and how China is handling it from a rule of law perspective um, versus, say, Italy. Right. Now, in here, I think one thing that's become so clear is that the right to development or and, and economic, social, and cultural rights are not paramount. And that one of the reasons that the virus was able to spread so much were that whistleblowers like Dr. Li Wenliang were silenced. And that you need that civil society to act as a check. You need a free press. And, and the Foreign Correspondence Club of China released recently their annual report. And it also just showed a continuing slide you know it was it wasn't good last year or the year before but it's yeah. even worse and when I look at the coronavirus through my lens of a, a lawyer and, and a human rights advocate is that if if you just have the government saying trust us we've got this I don't trust it I, I you need to have some independent view of what's happening um, you know at the moment that we're 
um, doing this podcast, I'm wondering, are my kids going to be in school, you know, on Friday? And we're just on the U.S. side starting to grapple with it. And, you know, this is so far from done. So I don't think that any country, including um, China, even though Xi Jinping just went to Wuhan, can declare victory. We're we're in for a marathon. This isn't a sprint. Uh, and and on, on an optimistic note, I just I'd like to take it back to Taiwan, which I think has done a tremendous job of, of dealing with the coronavirus. Uh, lots of transparency, uh, clear messaging from the top leadership to the public, uh, figuring out you know what, how they already had a single payer sort of, you know, uh, healthcare system in place, which was able to respond uh, to the people's needs in an immediate way. Uh, and so that's where I'm looking for uh, my inspiration about what countries can learn about how to handle a pandemic. Yeah, this will be a, a, a challenge for all societies, and um, we'll see how the international system rises to the occasion. You've been listening to the Rule of Law Talk podcast series with Professor Margaret Lewis from Seton Hall University and Ted Pacone from World Justice Project. Please check our website to see our latest Rule of Law Index 2020 with results comparing 128 countries and jurisdictions, including China and Hong Kong and Taiwan, not Taiwan, excuse me. And we will look forward to your tuning in to our next series. Thank you.